All right, we're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. We've got two uh, summary verses left, really, the end of Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So we come to the end, and what a remarkable teaching it was and remains. Some of the memorable highlights, of course, Uh, We saw the Beatitudes. We talked about how they are brief summary statements that talk about the way of living that's made possible by a relationship with the Lord. Not things that we should aspire to so much, but things that are true of us already uh, as spirit-filled Christians. Uh, We saw the outline for prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. Really, it's for us to understand the intimacy of our relationship with God and to focus our attention on Uh, why and how we pray. We looked at the golden rule of life and so many other things. Uh, As I've said a few times, uh, more than a few times in our study, the Sermon on the Mount may have been given once as a single sermon. In in fact, I'm sure it was. Uh, It may also have been given over and over in different locations. Uh, I don't think there's it takes anything away from the Sermon on the Mount to think that Jesus might have gone into different localities and repeated himself. It's it really the heart of everything that he had to say. It, it's, the, it's, you know, the summary of his ministry, is, especially as he came early on offering the Jewish nation the kingdom of heaven on earth and describing for them what that kingdom w- would have been like and will be like. Uh, Matthew certainly presents it as a single sermon. And uh, just thinking back on it, a couple of images that suggest themselves that I don't think we talked about uh, as we see Jesus ascending that mountain to deliver that sermon. Uh, He spoke a great deal, obviously, about the law of Moses in this talk. His audience, Jewish audience, would have been reminded of Moses going up on Mount Sinai and receiving the law of God. And so here we have Jesus going up to explain the law of God. When the law was given, the Lord came down on the mountain with thunder and lightning and an earthquake, and the people were ordered to keep their distance from the mountain or else they would die. Jesus ascended a mountain and invited everyone to draw near and hear him, and then he spoke in a gentle but authoritative voice. And so just in the giving of the sermon itself, in its location, And then the clarifying and applying of the law, I think the average Jewish person could see that change was coming, that there was going to be a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. Uh, And we we miss some of that symbolism not being Jewish. I mean, we can talk about it, but it's the kind of thing a a Jewish person would have understood because the, the giving, Moses was their big gun and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai was was the big event. And so here you have Jesus going up, probably, you know, obviously not Mount Sinai, not not a huge mountain peak, but up on a, a hill and interpreting that law and doing so in, in much different language, inviting all to come. And so what a, what a sweet kind of a picture that is really for the Jews. And then we've talked about how Jesus sat as he delivered the talk. It's true that uh, teachers sat and students stood in those days. Uh, probably more from the fact that you know facilities weren't as nice as what we have today. Yeah, you know there weren't chairs and folding chairs and things like that. But that was kind of the posture, and it showed respect. 
uh, you know, the, the teacher sat and the student stood, and it, it, it was a, a way of, you know, if you look at that, you think, well, they're, they're standing in the presence of, of that teaching. And I know there's some, uh, some of the Calvary guys, some other, not just Calvary guys, but some Bible teachers, uh, if you go to, uh, to their churches, uh, they, uh, they always have you stand when the Word of God is being read, just out of respect. Is it necessary? No, but it's, it's one of those things that shows respect, and, and it tells people who are coming for the first time, Hey, this is a serious thing. These people are taking this seriously. They're, you know, you know, you stand in the presence of of different dignitaries, and you show people respect and and all that. Uh, not necessary, but it, it's interesting. I think a lot of the things we do, uh, we lose some things in symbolism as Protestants because we don't want to take things too far and get back into Roman Catholicism. You know, which is not only symbolism, but symbols and icons. But anyway, teacher sat, uh, students stood. But here, since we are going to read that Jesus spoke with such authority, his seated posture also reminds you of a king sitting on a throne, more so than just a teacher sitting on a stool or uh, you know wherever he was sitting giving a sermon. <clears throat> and of course, he was and is the king. And these are the principles and precepts of kingdom living, both at that time, had the kingdom been established, uh, and later, and now for us, as we live in anticipation of the, the real millennial kingdom, but want to live in a way that honors the Lord. So a couple of just images that you would get without even hearing anything that Jesus had to say uh, that were uh, pretty powerful. We said that it was a sermon intended for his disciples. Its thrust is not really evangelistic. It's not intended to call people into the church uh, but it, it has an internal message. It sets standards for those who are already converted. Obviously, people listening might get excited about that kind of life and want to get saved, but it's really not evangelistic. <clears throat> and the instruction was intensely practical. It dealt not as much with things to be believed, but things to be done. Uh, as we saw when we looked at the individual Beatitudes, uh, this is what we already are if we're Christians, and, and therefore this is the way we live. Uh, obviously, if we're not living that way, we just need to make whatever adjustments are necessary. So now in these two closing verses, we see that his disciples were astonished because he spoke with authority. And so I want to first talk about, just for a minute, what it means to speak with authority. Uh, in the context, we have to remember that the religious teachers of Jesus' day did not speak with authority. They were given to citing others as authorities for various positions. Uh, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said that. And you see this sometimes in the the kind of uh, encounters that Jesus had with the Pharisees and, and Sadducees and scribes. They would come to him and say, you know, this so-and-so says this, what do you say? And they were always trying to figure out what the tradition really should be. Uh, and so they cited others as authorities for their positions. They didn't, they didn't just go to the word itself. They'd read a portion of the Law of Moses and then tell you what various rabbis had previously taught about it. And so they were teaching more the traditions of men rather than the word of God. And it made more for a debate than for discipleship because people would uh, decide which teacher or uh, which uh, you know camp that they wanted to follow. It's not unlike some churches today uh, which spend a lot of time teaching and discussing creeds of the faith rather than teaching God's word. I always find this fascinating, but 
there are a lot of uh, orthodox traditional churches that will do series on the great creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Belgic Confession of Faith. And I'm not saying those things aren't important in their historical context when when there were heresies to fight and you know those kinds of things. But I, I don't know that they need to be studied the same way that you would study the Word of God. Because essentially what they are is, you know, here they're once removed from the Bible. It's like, well, here's the Bible. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. It's it's in, you know it's it's in this creed, and so let's talk about this creed so that we all know what we believe. And I'm thinking, well, why don't we just study the Bible and talk about what the Bible teaches? And uh, you know, so I want to be careful there uh, and, and not blow that out too much. But it, it I always think it's weird. Uh, some of the churches refer to what I call the Johns, uh, Calvin and Wesley. Uh, they they will tell you this is what John Calvin said or this is what John Wesley said and thus you embrace a theology based on the word of God either a reformed theology or a Methodist theology or Arminian they call it and so you then you're divided into these two camps and I'm maybe you guys don't run into this on a regular basis but I'm amazed at how many people uh, church people uh, you really can't almost talk to them about the Bible so much because they immediately want to put you in one of these two camps, you know, in, in terms of, well, are you a Calvinist? Do you believe in the five points of Calvinism? Or if you don't, then you must be an Arminian following the teachings of Jacob Arminius. And so, and it's like you, you just, you, they draw you into that discussion rather than just talking about Jesus, quite honestly, and stuff. And it's, it's, I think it's similar to what the religious authorities did in Jesus' day. And Jesus just cut through all that, and he said, well, here's what the Word of God says. Um, and j- like the Jewish authorities, a lot of those kinds of people who adhere to those creeds real strongly and want to talk about them, uh, they spend most of their time arguing with other Christians uh, rather than reaching out to unbelievers or just doing a good work you know, for the Lord. And uh, I've, I've been drawn into so many arguments with so many people, uh, sadly, about things that, you know, we actually agree upon, but uh, not in the same way. So anyway, just a little aside there. So Jesus spoke with direct authority. We teach the word as authoritative. I, I don't have authority, but the word of God itself does, and I am to simply expose what it says. And when the word of God is exposed, the people of God are directed authoritatively by God into attitudes and actions that are consistent with their new nature as believers. Put it another way. Let's say a believer is struggling in some area. He or she then can go to the word of God and see what the Bible says about that. When they discover what the Bible says about their situation, they realize it is speaking to them with authority. It's not the counsel of some man. It's the counsel of God. It's the word of God. And then with that word comes the enabling to perform it. And so... Uh, in a sense, I am always to come to the Bible pre-submitted, uh, knowing that it contains everything for life and godliness. Uh, I come ready to hear it and obey it. Uh, it's not a matter of uh, a personal agreement or a personal feeling. Um, what does God say about the subject matter? Uh, what does he clearly say? I'm a Christian, and not only uh, I must do it, but I can do it. And so I leave that encounter uh, refreshed and encouraged and excited, uh, you know, even if it leaves me in a place where that I would consider adverse or 
uh, suffering because I'm always looking ahead to a greater reward. Uh, you know, obedience is its own reward. You know, I might not have everything I desire in this life, but I don't live for this life. You know, I, I live for to please the Lord and to get into uh, a posture in the next life. And so, so Christians ought to be pre-submitted to the Word. <clears throat> and um, quite honestly, I think you know, I, I don't know how I would describe it. I just think as generations uh, press on, uh, I see out in the world around us just less and less people who are wanting to submit to anything, really. You know, and and you see it in a lot of churches. There there isn't really a submission to the Word of God. Part of it's the fault of the church because they're not really teaching it as the Word of God. You know, they talk about Christian colleges all the time. A number of Christian colleges and universities have moved away from the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. It's, you know, they, they whether they personally have rejected that or whether they want to seem more intellectual or whether they want to attract more students, I don't know what the motivation is, but you know, you're not really getting... Uh, a, a real solid foundation like you think you are when you go to some of these colleges. Certainly you're not getting it at the secular colleges. And so, uh, you know, that's a problem in and of itself. And then somehow we're raising, uh, or somebody's raising people who are selfish, and selfish people are by definition not submitted people. And so you, you, you have a, a tougher time, uh, you know, I guess what I'm saying is you should be able to just read the Word of God together and say, hey, this is what God says, and the person say, oh, yeah, okay, I didn't realize that, so that's what I'm going to have to do. Uh, but you don't get that a lot anymore. You know, More and more you get, well, I don't want to do that, or that's not going to work for me, or maybe that'll work for somebody else or whatever and stuff. And so, so we want to remain submitted to the Word of God, knowing that it's not always going to be beneficial for us in the short run. Uh, you know, we, it, it's going to create some hardship for us because uh, it, it requires that we take up the cross and follow Jesus and stuff. And so uh, whenever we get bummed about that, we can be thankful that the Lord didn't take the shortcut that the devil offered him in the wilderness. But he went, uh, you know, he went the long haul and, and uh, achieved our salvation. So, and, so, so that's authority. Then the hearers were also astonished. They were astonished at his authority, but there are a lot of reasons we could cite to be astonished. The original hearers were astonished simply because no one had ever spoken to them with authority. Uh, Jesus was just, and remember in the sermon he says, this is what you've heard. I'm telling you this is what the Bible says. This is what God says. This is the actual meaning of that. And that's, that's pretty powerful. Uh, I, as a believer today, I'm astonished as I encounter things in the Bible which authoritatively give me a solid and sure foundation. I know I can trust its precepts and principles as a bedrock to build on my life. And we just had those verses, you know, last time we were together in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, you know, I, I look at this and I think, wow, I can build a life. I can build a family. I can build a service to the Lord on, on these things. And it's, it's pretty astonishing, after you, especially if you hadn't been a Christian for a period of time in your life. And, and then you come and, you know, you floundered and you know, you know, that you were on a slippery slope, and then all of a sudden God shows you how to live. It's, it's pretty exciting and astonishing. I'm astonished when I realize that the Bible is full of prophecy, most of which has been literally fulfilled to the letter. I mean, that's an, an amazing thing. Um, we're doing this uh, apologetics class on Sunday nights. We're almost done with it. And uh, in so many of the religious writings, 
whether it's the Quran or, or the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price, all that, all of that stuff filled with prophecy that is never not unfulfilled, unfulfillable, doesn't exist. You know, the, I don't know how anybody could be a Mormon. Tell you the truth, with, you know, with all the stuff that's in the Book of Mormon that they, I mean, there's they haven't found anything ever to to substantiate the claims of the Book of Mormon, and they talk about civiliz- a civilization being here on, on this continent. You know, when Jesus came over and preached the gospel, and and there's nothing. Uh, and stuff, and so I'm astonished when I realize that the Bible is full of fulfilled prophecy. Uh, and you know, modern criticism always tries to post date it. They always say, "Well, prophecy can't be true because if prophecy were true, then there must be a God." So whatever Daniel said must have been written after it happened by somebody who wasn't Daniel. And you know, some stuff you just can't argue. I mean, we do know some things existed. Uh, for sure, even the scholars have to admit there were some prophecies before they took place. You know, and then the whole thing with Jesus. I guess the the prevalent feeling. I mean, we do know that there was an Old Testament or a Jewish Torah before Jesus, and and the odds of Jesus or any one man fulfilling just a handful of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, some of which could not be self fulfilled, are astronomical. And so they come along and say, "Well, Jesus read this, and he, you know, he he fulfilled all." Yeah, he was born on the right day in the right place. He realized that he had a a leg up on the other (laughs) Messiah candidates, having been born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And so he thought, "Hey, I'll just go. I'll just go for it." And he was, yeah, he was able to calculate, you know, on an abacus the exact day he should enter Jerusalem and all of that kind of stuff. And so uh, it's pretty crazy, really. I'm astonished to see the simplicity of God's plan to reach the multitudes. And and basically his plan is me and you as witnesses, uh, him using common, ordinary folks in extraordinary ways. I'm astonished. That I can declare, any one of us in this room can declare with authority to sinners that they can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that God will forgive their sins. You ever think about that? If you're a Catholic, this is really meaningful to you because you had to go through mumbo jumbo <laughs> jambo, you know, to get to that place. I mean, it was a bunch of hokum. You know, you had to be baptized and go to catechism and have confession and communion, all of these things in order to have the temporary forgiveness of your sins by a priest who was some weird guy who dedicated his whole life to, you know, serving Jesus and stuff. And, and, and uh, so it's a pretty amazing thing that any believer can say to somebody, Jesus Christ has forgiven you your sins. All you have to do now is receive him as your Savior. I mean, that's, real, that's authority because now you're talking about the difference between heaven and hell. I, you're basically saying, I can guarantee you, you're going to go to heaven if you believe Jesus Christ and your sins will be forgiven. I mean, it's pretty astonishing, really, when you think about it. We have that delegated authority to do that. And you could go on and on. The whole thing is really astonishing. Everything about knowing the Lord and walking with him uh, is astonish, uh, astonishing. Or it's not because our walk has become routine and mundane. Uh, and so as the Sermon on the Mount ends, we're challenged not so much to do certain things as to realize who we really are and how incredible it is to know God. Uh, astonished at his authority, I won't be able to help but live out the sermon before others 
and thus reach them for Christ. So, uh, good good times, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, be refreshed and encouraged by these things.